This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, we'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and a lot more. And this week, we've got everything from Bear Stearns stock certificates, turns out they're actually worth a lot of money, (laughs) and playing Dungeons and Dragons. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? There's actually a big job that's out of playing D&D. And another edition of Business Week Talks, our exclusive interview with UPS CEO David Abney. Plus, my must-read of the week. It's about the new workers of the world. It's this week's cover story. First up, though, Carol. It was once the world's largest financial services company. Today, there are questions about its survival. In remarks and in news this week, Jason, we're talking about Deutsche Bank. We certainly are. We've been talking about it for quite some Mm -hmm. time, but it really took a turn over the past few days and this week as the market starts to digest what this plan going forward looks like and what it's going to mean, not just for Deutsche Bank, not just for Germany, but for the broader financial services business. Elisa Martinuzzi joins us from London. She's got the story. So remind us where we are right now. Christian Saving put out a plan. What does it basically entail? So after more than two decades spent trying to build up a business or trying to compete that would compete head on with Wall Street, they're making a significant U-turn by exiting the global equity trading business. And a move of this kind is really quite untested. We haven't seen a, um, a firm, a bank of this size pull out of that business in quite this way before. And as part of that, they're going to be shrinking the overall trading business by about 40% and reducing 20% of the workforce overall, cutting 18,000 jobs across the firm. Yeah, it's massive, right? It's a, a huge restructuring for any firm and certainly for Deutsche Bank. Investors, though, and we'll get into some of the details, but investors weren't impressed and they haven't been impressed by Deutsche Bank for some time. I think this is why it's been so difficult now to keep that investor, uh, to, to, you know, to gain investor enthusiasm for this. I mean, this is a bank that since the financial crisis has basically just drifted and tweaked around the edges, cut a bit of businesses here, scaled back there, but kept tried to keep optionality probably across too many investment banking businesses that were effectively a drag on the overall group. And in so doing, not only did it lose confidence of investors, but you know regulators um, were not so comfortable either. Um, the bank has been involved in you know a whole host of, um, of scandals from rate ringing to la- laundering funds. And, and all of that added to you know, a lack of credibility in the company to be able to, to thrive. Well, and we're talking $18 billion in fines that Deutsche Bank has paid for, for numerous things that they have done wrong. But what's interesting, I guess, about the Deutsche Bank story, Elisa, is that it's been years in the making, correct? Yes, absolutely. And I think what, what's happened is that, you know, after the financial crisis, there's been, a, a, you know, a secular shift in the engine that once drove Deutsche Bank, and that is the fixed income trading business, which is by no, one mean, by, by no means as large as it used to be. And it hadn't really adapted to that reality, not least because, you know, unlike U.S. peers that are driven by a strong domestic economy, um, the same can't be said about Europe. Um, a region in which, of course, you know, record interest rates rather are at record lows, which have also depressed margins. So you've got, you know, you've got a firm that isn't quite as healthy at home to be able to compete as effectively on the global stage. Well, and and keep talking a little bit about that because you you talked about record low interest rates, and, and we may be going into a period, and we're getting a lot of signals that we are, where Europe may find itself cutting rates even further. So. The short term doesn't look so good, and that may be why investors are a little down on this plan. I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you have a region where, you know, the economy is slowing and the ECB has signaled potential further rate cuts, uh, potentially more quantitative easing also on the table. So if you look at the earnings outlook for the region's banks, you know, they're certainly not getting any better. Um, so there, there is some concern that this plan, though most would agree is, you know, is considerably um, radical, may just have come too late, particularly given the business outlook more generally across the industry. And so talk to us about the rest of the industry and, and what impact Deutsche Bank's troubles. It's It's sort of the latest iteration of its troubles, I should say, are going to have in terms of personnel, in terms of, you know, other banks may be, may be able to pick up some business here. 
Well, potentially, and one bank in particular um, is worth watching, that is BNP Paribas France. They've entered a preliminary agreement to assume some of the equities business from Deutsche Bank. That would include potentially some employees, some assets. We'll be hearing more about that agreement, I suspect, over the coming weeks. But of course, you know, with one uh, top 10 player leaving, there could be other businesses that gain uh, other European players. But equally, it also puts pressure on the others who are not like, you know, who are not leading rather in the industry, potentially to look closer at the equity business and whether they really want to, whether they really want to stay in it. That's Elisa Martinuzzi and Deutsche Bank. It has been a story really at the top of the most read charts on the Bloomberg seemingly for months now. Yeah, it's amazing. It was once the world's largest financial services company. Today, there are questions about what this company will be going forward. Of course, we're talking about Deutsche Bank. Well, and even news after we talked about this for the magazine, Deutsche Bank wrapped up once again in the 1MDB scandal over in Malaysia. So a big week in the markets. We saw the S&P 500, you're laughing, but hitting another record. I'm laughing only because I'm looking forward to the insights from one Mr. Michael Regan, senior editor over at Bloomberg, watches them minute to minute, but also is so good about giving us the perspective. So what's going on out there? Well, I think a few things. You know, if you go back to the G20 meeting, uh, it's not like there was a trade deal wrapped up in a pretty bow, bow but the tensions did uh, de-escalate a little bit. Huawei uh, is not the sort of focal point of people's concerns that it was, you know, the Chinese uh, telecom company. Then you add on to that um, basically the notion that the Federal Reserve is going to blink and actually cut interest rates, which is you know, let's be honest, the most important thing stock traders worry about Mm -hmm. is, you know, do they have to worry about higher interest rates down the road? Uh, It's pretty clear now that they'll at least get that one cut in July uh, at the end of this month. Um, After that, it's anybody's guess. Um, But those two things, I think, are sort of, you know, clear away two of the big main worries that people had about um, while the trade war has not been resolved, at least it's not escalating further. And then you layer on top of that, well, we'll get this bonus interest rate mm-hmm. cut most likely uh, this month. And and it's off to the races. After well, that. yeah. And I mean, valuations off to the races as well. So I do wonder, you know, as we start to move into another earnings season, you know, I love my earnings. But I mean, I do wonder what we're going to hear from companies and what they're going to say about the outlook. I don't think it's going to be very good. Um, You know, the forecasts are for a drop in earnings in the second quarter. Um, The third quarter is not looking much better. Uh, The fourth quarter, there's still this pent up uh, expectations for this terrific rebound in earnings. The the second quarter season might throw a little cold water on that. Right. Um, But, you know, again, it goes back to that notion of lower interest rates. I think people will be perfectly happy to look past a little bit of softness in earnings if they think, okay, we don't have to worry about interest rates going up. Um, Bond yields are just not enticing at these levels to move money out of equities uh, into bonds necessarily, even though we have, you know, we've seen these massive inflows into bond funds all year. Um, You know, with rates low, people are going to remain engaged in the stock market. I think you will see some volatility uh, among certain companies, perhaps certain sectors, but what will happen will be more of a rotation into uh, whatever sectors people think are less at, at risk to all these issues uh, rather than abandoning the whole market completely. And if you don't like the stock market, maybe you can invest in what I'm calling like the graveyard of stock certificates. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about this great story that you've got in the magazine. I love it. <laughs> well, thanks. Right. Kind of out of left field. So there is this market for stock certificates and bond certificates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very niche market. Market. But, you know, before computers, obviously, the way stocks were traded w- was literally with paper certificates. And even after computers- It's not so long ago. Don't make us feel <laughs> right, 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 Like right. we were talking about how you would give that as a gift to somebody because it was so cool to it's get like- Here's a share of Coca-Cola. Right. Or, right, di- right. or Disney, right? Disney the, was a very popular one. The certificates were really right, beautiful. Right. And Disney continued to issue them lo- yeah. you know, long after they were sort of obsolete as a as a trading mechanism. But what I, I kind of focused on, and I had been sort of mulling doing something about this uh, this hobby for a while. But really what caught my attention is obviously the other big uh, hot area of collector's interest is anything presidential uh, related. Mm -hmm. So here you have Donald Trump, uh, who was the head of a public 
uh, company yeah. with lots of stock and bond certificates out there. And it, he meets uh, the presidential collector's uh, interests. So uh, Trump stock certificates are very hot, even though the irony to me is that, okay, a company that went bankrupt, basically a worthless stock is now those certificates are the among the hottest sellers um, relatively, you know, there's some you can find for, yeah. you know, uh, there's a Trump certificate up for, I think, $800 yeah, on, on eBay, eBay right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some up for sale on other sites uh, for like 6,000, 7,000. One, uh, a lot of times what really uh, adds value to them is who signs them. One mm. was signed by Mark Twain. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, railroad yeah. stock. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and more, you know, Closer to to our time than Mark Twain is, you know, the financial crisis when yeah. a lot of companies, you know, that are that no longer exist. We're talking about Lehman. We're talking about uh, Bear Stearns countrywide. Even yeah, yeah, people want these certificates. It's it's a real funny part of this market is that um, they there's certain websites that sell these things have categories like fraud, failures, and bankruptcies. They're hot. They're very popular. Um, I think it's anything with a good story behind it. Obviously, uh, Lehman Brothers has uh, uh, an intriguing story behind it, as disastrous as it was. Um, that captivates people's interest. The, the the one guy I quoted, you know, his one of his first quotes to me was, "Boy, I wish I had bought more Lehman." Which I just thought, <laughs> I, I just thought was the most ironic thing you, yeah. could, you could possibly say. Well, and you talk about you talk about Lehman. You talk about. A share of Bear Stearns bought by J.P. Morgan Chase during the crisis for ten dollars a share. Now it's going to cost you about four hundred dollars <laughs> for that stock certificate. How right. wild is that? It's pretty wild. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. And to me, what's what's fascinating about this market is, I think there are probably sort of hidden treasures in people's file cabinets yeah. or tucked away, and they don't really realize that something that you know basically they uh, you know discarded as worthless years ago could could now be well, worth a few hundred bucks. You talked about paper. a stock certificate that was actually signed by Bernie Madoff. Yeah, yeah. That was offered uh, for sale for something like twelve thousand. They actually reduced it to I think um, sixty five hundred dollars. Uh, but yeah, Bert, Bernard, uh, Bernie Madoff's signature, I guess, is is something someone somewhere wants to collect. Well, and it feels like almost every, as is the case with almost every consumer product, there's a huge market in China. China, yeah, and that was fascinating. Something I hadn't realized. Um, Especially for uh, one dealer told me for Kentucky Fried Chicken shares of all places <laughs> with the picture of Colonel Sanders it's on it. Very Americana. It is. It's very good. But you know, yeah. KFC is a pretty pretty uh, hot uh, fast food chain in China, so right. it makes sense, um, uh, you know, to to see this demand for the Colonel. And- it's not just stock certificates, as you mentioned. There was a federal bond certificate that was signed by by George Washington. Love this. Yeah, yeah, and, and it this- sold for something like two hundred and sixty-five thousand dollars. That was a that's a fascinating story. Yeah. And the guy said, you know, they, they won't tell you who the bidders are at that type of price. Um, you hear these guys say, well, hedge fund guy or CEO, a lot right. of times are, are the are the bidders for the really expensive ones like that. So I'm, we're not really sure who bought it, but um, the dealer said he would have probably gone to a million dollars for uh, it's yeah. a, a U.S. bond from, I think, 1792 signed yeah. by George Washington himself. That's our senior editor, Mike Regan. He covers the markets for us uh, and was really fascinating, this story. He's been wanting to do it for some time. But, you know, you think about Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, Countrywide Financial, all of these companies gone following the financial crisis, but some of their stock certificates still remain and they're worth money. Right. I was also uh, tickled to learn that this isn't just about like old dudes holed up in basements, (laughs) you know, looking at these stock certificates like the kids are doing it too. And so are collectors in China. So a great read. So you might recall headlines back in April about a fleet of Mercedes that went missing from a car sharing service. It's what I call a wait what moment. It (laughs) absolutely is. And I had a vague recollection, but then as I read into the story by Joshua Brustein, it's really an amazing tale, especially when you think about the idea that they're effectively watching these cars get stolen. (laughs) Car to go was the victim here. What happened? Yeah, so it started on a Monday in April, normally a very slow day for the car sharing business, made even slower because there was some snow on the ground. They weren't really expecting to see much uh, much activity. It was Chicago, right? It was in Chicago, yeah. yeah. And um, they were actually monitoring the fleet from Austin, Texas, which uh, is where Cardigo is based. And suddenly they saw that all the high-end cars, the Mercedes, were headed out of the coverage area. Um, they only are, operate in part of Chicago, and they watch as like a lot of cars, way more than normal, all got signed out and all headed to the same place. And they started to think, well, what is going on? And what did they find out? 
Well, they found out that it turned out they had changed the uh, process for getting a new account several um, just several days earlier. And apparently made it easier, right? People had made it easier to get an account. Right. Um, it used to be that every new application was checked by a human. They went to an automated service and people found this out very quickly, set up dozens of fake accounts and started using them to check out all of the expensive cars in Chicago or about half of the expensive cars in Chicago or if um, were effectively taken on mm -hmm. a joyride. And so they were essentially able to then kind of give them away or, or even in some cases, you know, sort of rent them out to people who, as you say, some took them on joyrides, some were like stripped down. I mean, this was a disaster in, in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. The interesting thing to me was almost immediately um, ads started popping up on Facebook saying, hey, if you want to rent a Mercedes in West Chicago and you got, it was like $100, um, you know, I'll rent you, I'll rent you this Mercedes. Hit me day. up. Yeah. And so that and that happened, and people started, you know, trading these Mercedes and driving around in them. Now, the interesting thing also was that this was a really unusual event, but it wasn't completely unusual. This wasn't the first time that these sorts of ads had showed up on Facebook. There, right. there was a history of this kind of secondary market for car sharing going on in Chicago. There's also been some in Brooklyn. What is it about Chicago, right? Because it does seem like it's happened several times, not just to car to go, right? Yeah, um, Enterprise, which operated a car sharing business, pulled out of Chicago in 2017. They cited high rates of fraud and vandalism. Um, there have also been some problems in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. uh, both with uh, BMW's car sharing service called Reach Now, um, so it's the which higher end, had similar the high problems. Yeah. yeah, it's always the high end vehicles for the most part. Um, you know, there's more. If you're going to joyride, you want to do it in a Benz. In style. Can I just say, though, what That's was... That's how Carol is. Well, like, when she's joyriding, she steals a I very high-end car. I own my car. But what was crazy is the car-to-go people, right, went to the site in Chicago where all the cars were meeting, right, initially. Like, I thought, oh, my God, they went to see what was going on. Right. So there is a practice with car-sharing companies where if a car does something unusual, the first thing you do is you send someone to go they have to go investigation all the cars have yeah. gps trackers there was no attempt during this during this incident to turn those off mm. as far as we can tell um and so they started sending some people over to figure out exactly what was going on um you know uh the company didn't want to talk about this but people um that i spoke to who were familiar with the incident said there was um was sort of a menacing scene yeah people realized pretty quickly that this was a little bit um out of their hands and sort of retreated to figure out next steps and eventually the police showed up. So talk to us about the car sharing mm -hmm. business because, you know, while Lyft and Uber, you know, those are ride hailing and those obviously have just exploded in terms of their popularity. Car sharing, maybe for reasons like this and, and maybe for other reasons, just owing to, I'm not sure I want to just, you know, share my car with somebody. So, I mean, I would share it with you. <laughs> but uh, maybe, although now that I know your history of joyriding. Um, but how has this not uh, been as successful maybe as people thought? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, as you said, car sharing is kind of in the same mobility bucket yeah. as ride hailing. Um, and some of these other businesses, Uber and Lyft, have been you know enormous businesses. They're op they operate pretty much everywhere now. Um, by contrast, there's car sharing only, and I think it's less than 10 um, United States cities huh. for um, for car to go and reach now. Um, that's sort of the Mercedes and BMW companies. They actually merged, so they're one company now. Um, and I think in part with car sharing, you're sort of going after someone who wants to drive a car. Um, those people are more likely to own cars right. than someone who wants a ride right. like Uber and Lyft, where that's that's more of a that's a taxi service. A lot of times, those people either. Um, it's just a, it's a different thing. I think yeah. when people want to drive cars, there's still a tendency in the United States to buy those cars. And that's Joshua Brewstein. And I liked this story not only for the drama. You can almost see this being an episode of some cop show. Yeah. Uh, but also it's a look into what the car sharing business is all about and some of the challenges that are embedded. Yeah. And I love that line in this story about the tension between convenience and security. These ride sharing businesses, they're trying to figure it out. Workers of the world are going through an industrial revolution of sorts, a great convulsion, if you will, as some have described it, which means for some 
opportunities, but Jason, as we find in this story for many others, struggles and great vulnerabilities. Well, and we talk so much about the great opportunities mm-hmm. and disruption and the beneficiaries of that, especially for consumers and at times uh, workers as well. But Wahini Vara, she set out to do something completely different in a lot of ways, spent six months going around the world with the help of some other reporters, but she delivers an unbelievable story. It's the global cover this week. She joins us now. Tell us what you set out to do. So I... Last year, I was hired along with my husband to teach on the Semester at Sea Study Abroad program. And so that was going to take me all over the world, right? We were traveling to, to Europe, to Asia, to Africa. And as a reporter, the first one of the first thoughts that I had when we were assigned this, this job, this three to four month job was, OK, what kind of what kind of reporting project is possible when I'm dropping into each city for, you know, one day, two days, five days. Um, in the meantime, I had been reading a lot of oral histories. Um, uh, there's this writer, uh, Liao Yi Wu, who is a Chinese writer who wrote this book called The Corpse Walker, which is interviews with workers in China, which I thought was just uh, remarkable. So I'd been thinking a lot about that format. It had not been something I'd tried before. And so it occurred to me, why not go to each of these places and just start talking to workers about what their lives are like, how they came to do what they're doing, um, what's difficult about it, what's rewarding about it. All right. So then let's talk about what you found, because it was, I think, 10 workers that you end up profiling. Uh, There were multiple reporters also involved in there. There were translators. As you said, it was a global undertaking. Tell us about some of the people that you met. So they were all so interesting. I mean, really, this is an, an unusual story. I was telling my husband that in some ways it feels like it's not my story, right? Because mm-hmm. these are stories told in workers' own words. There are 10 of them. Um, I'll tell you, about, I mean, they're all remarkable. People should go read the story. But um, but so I met uh, Desmond Ahankara in Accra, Ghana. He's a guy who liked tinkering with computers when he was in school. You know, he went to community college, the equivalent of it tinkered with computers with his friends, later got a job as a taxi driver, which was a really sort of low-paying, back-breaking, unrewarding work. And then one day it occurred to him, like, what would happen if I just go into a store, buy a computer, and then bargain with them so I can buy a used computer for a little bit less than it might otherwise be sold, sold for, and then post it on Facebook and WhatsApp and you know, tell people that I'm selling it for more than that. So that's what he did. He just walked into a store, bought a computer, bargained bargained down on the price, and then um, posted it online. And people came to him and said, you know, we want to pay X amount, which was higher than what he bought it for. Um, So next thing he knew, he was building this business as a computer reseller. And he now has this, you know, quite successful small business selling used computers that get imported from the U.S. and uh, Europe after they're used there uh, and resold to people in Ghana. That's just one example. Um, A lot of people crossed borders um, to get to where they are. Um, I talked to a Senegalese Montero in uh, Barcelona. These are people who... um, are street vendors who sell things on a on a sort of blanket on the street, which is generally illegal. Um, he's from Senegal. His father was a shoe salesman. And so one summer he said to his dad, you know what, I'm going to sell shoes with you because I want to raise some money to pay for my school books. Like, I really want to contribute to this family. His dad said, okay. He was really proud. He went out, earned a bunch of money. And what he did actually was he kind of took that money Um, went to another part of Senegal and ended up taking a boat to migrate to Spain and then called his dad from Spain and was like, hey, dad, actually, here I am. I moved. (laughs) Um, So what and which is to say, like, these are all you hear a lot about the kind of difficulties and heartache, I think, for people who have um, working class jobs in this new global economy. And what I really kind of admired most about some of these people is just like the ingenuity and the the intelligence that they that they use to kind of get to where they ended up. Well, and Wahina, I think one of the most fascinating things about this series of, of stories and, the, and interviews that you did is that in many cases, you see the other side of some mega trends that we're seeing, whether it's mm-hmm. cannabis, whether it is Amazon or social media. Tell us about some of the people you encountered that really illustrates that this isn't all sort of rainbows and unicorns. 
Yeah. So um, one really interesting woman I met was in Colombia. She lived and worked in a town called Rio Negro near Medellin. And in Colombia, as, as many people know, um, there has been a kind of legacy and history of, um, of drug wars, of illegal drug trafficking. Um, but a couple of, several years ago, the country decided to legalize the cultivation of marijuana for medical use. And so what happened was actually, interestingly, all these companies that used to make, used to grow flowers, chrysanthemums in particular, decided um, the chrysanthemum business wasn't doing that well. Um, and they decided to get into the pot business. And so in this town that used to have a bunch of chrysanthemum farms, these farms all turned into um, these huge um, these huge outdoor uh, marijuana grow facilities. And so I met one woman who used to work in a, in a chrysanthemum farm, uh, quit her job because her one of her daughters got into a horrible accident. So she quit her job to take care of her daughter, um, who in the aftermath of the accident was sort of suffering from some after effects. And then a friend of hers told her about this company that was growing cannabis for medical purposes. And she was like, wait, that sounds that sounds interesting. You know, maybe that's even something that could help my daughter. Who knows? So she applied to work for this company. Turns out all the skills she had from working at chrysanthemum farms applied really well to growing pots. So that's what she's doing now. You know, Wahini, I do wonder if there's something to be learned here in, in, in reading about these individual workers. And I do recommend that everybody get the magazine, go online and read these individual cases because they really struck um, Jason and myself. But I do wonder, is there something to be learned here, especially when we have such an ongoing global conversation about the gaps in, in our society between people who have a lot and have achieved financial wealth and so on and so forth and those that have not? Because it feels like each of these individuals in many ways are really struggling. The thing that surprised me most, I have to say, wasn't that they're struggling because as you've said we've we've heard about that we mm -hmm. know that people are struggling we know many of us have people among our friends and family who are struggling well and you also uh, sort of point out interestingly that this idea that many of these jobs i think it's implicit in this you know many of these jobs didn't exist necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, close to home for us here in New York. You know, you talk to a woman named Maya Kelly, no relation, who, uh, interestingly, it, my biggest takeaway from that was in order for her to be successful, she had to change her name or go by a different name in order to, to get hired initially to gain the skills that she ultimately has leveraged into her career. Yeah, I really um, was interested in, in Maya's story. She was born as Shamaya Kelly uh, in a small town in, um, in the South. And her parents were from New York. They were from Queens, I think. And so she had always sort of had an interest in New York. Her grandma lived there. And so one summer, summer when she was 15, she went up to New York and hung out with her grandma and would just like walk around Times Square talking to people until six in the morning. Um, and went back home to, to the South and told all, told all her friends, I'm going to go back to New York. Like, I'm going to move to New York. I'm going to get a job in New York. Um, so she graduated from college, was sort of living with her boyfriend in the South. He had a job down there. She was like, she didn't have anything. She was sort of puttering around the house, feeling really useless, like feeling ambitious and wanting to get out there and do something. She was sending out her resume to get try to get jobs. And on the resume, she would write Shamaya Kelly, wasn't getting any hits. Then she read a BuzzFeed article by this guy with what she describes as an ethnic sounding name who, um, as an experiment, decided to change his name on his resume. All of a sudden, he started getting a bunch of hits. And so she's this really enterprising person. And so she thought to herself, rather than, I mean, I think in addition to being upset by what she read, she also thought to herself, like, hmm, maybe I should try that too. Hmm. So on her resume, she changed her name to Maya Kelly and right away started getting all these hits, as Maybe. she describes it. She ended up getting a job, uh, sorry, an interview offer in New York. She had, um, another thing she had done is I think she had put her grandmother's address on her resume uh, for some job postings in New York, uh, got an interview offer, was asked to, you know, come the next day or the day after or something, um, packed her backpack, went up to New York, did the interview, got the job. And next thing she knew, she was a New Yorker. Like she just she left everything and moved to New York. But the interesting thing, as you point out, is that in New York now, her name is just Maya Kelly. Like that's what she goes by professionally. She's a she's a social media influencer and that's her influencer name. But all her friends back home know her as Shamaya. And they're all sort of like, 
who's this Maya person? Like, right. who are you now? That person's not real. So it's really, um, really nuanced and interesting, I think. That's reporter Wahini Vara, and she spent a long time reporting this story, worked with other reporters, translators, but it's all about the new workers of the world who are going through an industrial revolution of sorts, a great convulsion. That was the term used in her reporting. Well, and I feel like we both walked away from this story a little bit unsure, and maybe mm-hmm. that's the point about whether this was a story of struggle or a story of ambition. It turns out it's complicated and it's probably both. Yeah, exactly. As the protests in Hong Kong have lingered on, the world is beginning to realize that the fight is not only about a local extradition law, but also about a fight for democracy. This story only gets bigger and bigger in a lot of ways and is raising some almost existential questions about democracy, as you say. Jillian Goodman joins us from London. She oversees the politics section for Business Week. And this really has turned into quite the global story, Jillian. Why? I mean, it's extremely compelling. You have people, you know, massing out in the streets, demanding uh, a degree of freedom from China. And this is, you know, not only is it a global story, it's a long story. I do wonder, with the protests in Hong Kong, that's a stark reminder of how China likes to control its citizens, correct? Absolutely, yeah. There, there's been a lot of back and forth on this issue of voting specifically. So the basic law that governs Hong Kong, or rather uh, has governed Hong Kong since the handover from the uh, from the UK mm-hmm. in 1997, says that Hong Kong gets to maintain its own separate uh, capitalist system of government and way of life for 50 years. So that means that that runs out in 2047. But meanwhile, like China still gets a degree of approval over the leadership of Hong Kong. Uh, they uh, the leader is selected by a committee that's made up largely of Beijing loyalists, uh, and there's no popular vote to determine who that is. And they've gone back and forth on this question a lot. You saw this in 2014 with the umbrella protests. Um, and so, you know, this is the latest turn of the, of the screw there. Well, and it's interesting, too, to think about Hong Kong and its place in mm-hmm. the world, right? I mean, this is obviously a political story writ large yeah, and that's absolutely. why it sits in this section but it could it's funny to think about it could be in almost any section of the magazine right Jillian in the sense that Hong Kong's an economic powerhouse Hong Kong is absolutely. incredibly uh, important to the financial services world and that in part is why people are paying such close attention it feels like absolutely yeah it's a business story and that people don't want you know companies don't want people that they have stationed in Hong Kong to be subject to Chinese law you know, that's you don't you don't want suddenly someone who's working in Hong Kong to run afoul of the government in Beijing and wind up being sent there for trial under Chinese law uh, creates a lot of uh, complications. So what's the likelihood? Because when there was the handover of Hong Kong from the UK back to China, I mean, there were you know, they talked about these direct ele- elections. But as you said, that there's really a committee that is, you know, governed or overseen by um you know, folks back in China, how likely is it that Hong Kong will ultimately get some kind of direct elections? So that agreement says that direct elections are the ultimate aim, but there is no mechanism in that law to actually uh, start direct elections and no indication, uh, you know, on the part of Beijing that it has any desire to allow direct elections. And the folks we talked to in the story say it's very unlikely. Beijing has no incentive to approve a a measure that would allow for direct elections um, because most people in Hong Kong don't approve of the government in Beijing. Well, and it's also an interesting reminder of the ultimate goals and the ultimate sort of political ethos of President Xi Jinping. We talk about him a lot in his relationship with President Trump Mm -hmm. and the U.S.-China trade agreement, but he has, to say the least, grand ambitions for China and has ruled pretty firmly uh, across all of his country of which Hong Kong is now a part. So it's hard to see him relenting in a meaningful way here, right? Absolutely. He's done a lot to crack down on dissent. Uh, the reason the people were carrying those umbrellas in the 2014 protests was to protect themselves from tear gas. So, you know, there, there's there been a lot 
on the part of Beijing to quell this kind of activity. Well, and in this week, just to, to make a, a sort of point of reference, Jillian, you know, we had Carrie Lam, the chief executive of Hong Kong, come out mm-hmm. and say, both in Cantonese, I believe, and in English, you know, this is, you know, this extradition law is dead. But that actually didn't satisfy the protesters mm-hmm. because what they really want is for her to actually withdraw it. It seems like a sort of a, a small point, but it feels important for the people who are protesting this. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of distrust between the protesters and Carrie Lam. You know, as you say, she she did not withdraw the bill, so it could come back with a very little notice. And unless and until she does, you know, these protesters have vowed to keep opposing it. And, um, you know, the longer this goes, who knows what else will be required to really uh, satisfy this latest uh, unrest and put it to bed. You know, I do wonder, Jillian, in the power of the people, and I wonder if it's changed at all in China or Hong Kong Mm -hmm. specifically. There's there's one uh, statistic cited in this story, and it talks about only 27% of people surveyed by the University of Hong Kong's public opinion program last month said that they felt proud about becoming a Chinese citizen. That's an all-time low. So I do wonder about public sentiment. Has something changed that gives them, you know, the ability to wield more power uh, today than maybe a few years ago or no? I mean, I think that, you know, these sort of popular movements, it's tough when you're a leader like Xi Jinping, who has, you know, pretty much ultimate power. And yet you do have a party that you have to satisfy. And those the members of your party do have constituents. And so even though it's very I'm not going to go ahead and say easy, but, you know, it's relatively easy for someone like President Xi to quell these kind of movements. On the other hand, you do have to be worried because if popular support builds to a certain extent, you might see, you know, suddenly mm-hmm. change might become unavoidable. And you want to avoid getting to that point if you're she. And that's Jillian Goodman, our politics editor at Bloomberg Business Week. She joined us from London. And it's a reminder that Hong Kong really is a global story. This is not limited to that city. It's not limited to China. This has an impact on finance and business politics and economics. Right. And for the people on the ground, it's a big fight for democracy as well. So take a little nerd culture, throw in Stranger Things, add a dash of the gig economy, and you get a world where you can be a professional Dungeons and Dragons master. Well, I love this story in part because Mary Pallon, we usually lean on her to talk about the business of sports. Yeah. This is kind of got a sports fandom and playing in sort of a different way. Dungeons and Dragons, it is back. Mary joins us here in New York City. What's going on here? Well, to us fans, it never left. I was going to um, say, did it ever go away? Did it ever go has away? never really left. But I think that it's um, fascinating what's Are you really a fan? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So I'm. it turns out pretty common that I played as a kid, and then life happens, and you stop playing. But now there's this wave of nostalgia where people are picking up the game again, either because, like me, they left it behind, or they're interested in it for the first time. And I think we can credit Stranger Things and Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings and kind of the more mainstreaming of nerd culture for some of that. Okay, for those non-nerds out there, just remind everybody what this game is about. Sure. So Dungeons & Dragons is what's called an RPG. It's a role-playing game. So there's a bunch of books, and you sit around with your friends, and you navigate a series of adventures or quests as a character. You could be an elf. You could be anything. And you can have just a one session that's, you know, two to four hours, or you can have a campaign that can stretch out. There are people who've been playing D&D with the same group for years and years and years. And that's part of the fun of it, is that it's as open architecture as you want. Well, and in many ways, it it sort of presaged a lot of the role playing that we see in video games Mm -hmm. now and have seen over the past few years. But this resurgence has in part been due to sort of the nostalgia of Mm -hmm. Stranger Things. I mean, Stranger Things has been this phenomenon in its own right. How does D&D play in there? Oh, I think the nostalgia piece is huge. And what's fascinating is that D&D was part of a moral panic in the 80s and 90s. We forget this today, that people wow. thought it's satanic, it's evil, yeah, the religious right really went after this, this game. And um, now, and I include in the story a dungeon master pastor who uses D&D to teach kids um, about you know their communion lessons and things. So we've come full circle. And ironically, our RPGs and tabletop games have had this huge renaissance in the last 10 years. Because people thought, oh, video games are exploding. That's going to kill board games. What's actually happened is things like Twitch have come in. And now 
if you wanted to play D&D, you know, 20 years ago, you had no idea. It was really overwhelming. Now you can watch people online play and learn about what, what could happen on it. So ironically, things like Kickstarter, Twitch, they've given way more access like to the these games. Craze, right? Absolutely. To some extent. And there are people that I interviewed for the story who have whole separate income streams because people will subscribe to their D&D channels. Well, let's talk about that. I just want to throw out two numbers that you had in your story. 40 million people are playing it annually. And you also said sales of the game were up 41% in 2017 from the year before. That's a big boost. It's a big boost. And I think that also Wizards of the Coast, which is the subsidiary of Hasbro that's been putting out the game for quite some time, they get some credit for that because I think the fifth edition of the game, which came out in 2014, um, made it a lot more accessible. Mm. They got a lot of feedback. They do a lot of play testing. And yeah. it made it accessible for new players and they you know put a starter set out there and now you can buy it at a big box retailer you don't have to you know go to a niche game store to get access to these products anymore but it made the game a lot more inviting but also for the elite dungeon masters a lot more bandwidth to create their own adventures and so talk about that because you mentioned sort of (laughs) technology and the internet that has really fueled the accessibility in a way too and also created this like commercial ecosystem this new commercial ecosystem tell us about that absolutely and you know I talked to a lot of people about how the quality of dungeon mastering has increased also as a result of what you're talking about. Because I don't think now, I've ever heard anyone yes. use the term mm-hmm. dungeon mastering. Oh, not, no. not all dungeon masters are created equal. <laughs> yeah. um, but you now have professional voice actors or people with really serious you know, theater and acting chops doing this and making a living at it. And so it's not just you pay your friend for you know some beers to drop the character sheets. There's also this there's greater expectations of what this game can be. Yeah. Well, and you talk about, uh, I don't know, let's see, uh, somebody, uh, tell us about this guy. What is his name? Devin Chulik? Yes. So Devin Chulik lives in the Bay Area, and he is kind of the, I I used him as the lead of the story because I thought he kind of epitomized what we're seeing. He has this Twitch stream. He's been playing with his friends. And kind of as an afterthought, they're like, you know what? Let's put this on Twitch. We've been playing together. And now they have, you know, subscribers who are paying $4.99 a month to just watch them play D&D on Sundays. Subscription model. They've got four sponsors, (laughs) including a beer company that they toast on air. And he also... Also, um, will be your dungeon master. You know, he'll do your bachelor party. He'll do your kid's birthday. He'll guide first time, you know, players through a campaign. Um, and he has not had to do any advertising. He has a website and a lot of it has been word of mouth from his Twitch, his Twitch following. So it's a great example of a amazing side hustle. I mean, he loves D and D and he gets to do this all the time now. And I know you want to ask something, but the money, like even just for a few hours, he's making several hundreds of dollars. Right. But he's also, I think, um, partially because of the Twitch platform seen as a kind of high end DM, right? So yes, he'll teach beginners, but he also, I think has skills way beyond that. But there are a lot of people out there who will do a game online for you for a lot less, or maybe just do a one-off lesson or something. So there's a lot of range and pricing. So why do you think that we've seen this revival uh, or, or this surge in nerd culture? Oh, that's a great question. I think there's a lot of things. One is the pop culture we're getting, but I think there's been an irony in the screen era and that mm-hmm. now you have parents complaining about their kids playing video games all the time, suck on their phones. Now you really want your kids to play D&D because yeah. it's a cooperative game. It's yeah. pretty nonviolent mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and it forces kids to use their imaginations. And I think that, you know, in Stranger Things, particularly the first season, you see that magic and kids have that, right? And yeah. so I think that there's kids who are getting into that, but also adults who realize, oh, wait, we used to think that way. And I think D&D is a way for people to put their phones away and spend FaceTime with each other. Right. So- and this nostalgia effect, mm-hmm. it, it feels Huge. like is very real. And mm-hmm. and nostalgia effect is not new, obviously. Like we all went through a period <laughs> where it's like call back to the 70s. But yeah. now the 80s really seems to be having a moment in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm all for it. Playlists alone. Um, yeah. But I think that D&D <laughs> is definitely part of that. But that's not all of the story, right? Because there are things that come back in nostalgia and go away. Yeah. But I think that D&D's you know, increase has been going on a little bit before that, which is exciting. Yeah. So the guys cool. who are making the game, like, how are they thinking about how they can capitalize on it even more? Sure. So I think the partnering with Twitch has been a great example yeah. of you know really trying to cater to this high-end elite form of this. And the thing I'm really curious about is now because of esports, you have professional video game athletes. We've seen so much right. money dumped into watching people play games. D&D is kind of different in a way because it's not a competitive game, but I don't think it's far-fetched to think that we could have a league, that there could be competitive D&D stars the same way there are in, say, Overwatch. So I think if you're Wizards of the Coast, you would be pushing for that as much as you can because it's your sport. It's becoming way more like sports than it ever has been in the past. And then it won't be so nerdy. I would argue it's never been nerdy. (laughs) I think it's always been, I'm always pro-magic. I'm not saying it's pro-magic. It's so cool. 
That's Mary Pallon. Her story about Dungeons and Dragons, really how it's had a revival, big revival over the last couple of years, thanks to Stranger Things and a couple of other factors. But there's also a new job that has come out as a result of that revival. It's an interesting collision of technology and nostalgia mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Mary's funny because she said, for people like her, she's a D&D aficionado. <laughs> it never really went away. It's time for another edition of Bloomberg Business Week Talks, a wide-ranging conversation. And this week, it was the chairman and CEO of UPS, David Abney. David's been at the firm for many decades, and he's really seen UPS go from kind of a packaging company to a packaging and logistics company. Yeah, it's in the middle of some of the biggest disruption mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, both consumers consumers need to get things right now, uh, and also just a change in the entire transportation landscape. It's so funny. I feel like every day there's a story about either Amazon trying to get packages, you know, faster to folks or FedEx. I'm just curious, is that what the business has kind of whittled down to? It's just about getting things there faster and cheaper? Time is certainly a big key now. And uh, this new generation has just uh, really gotten used to wanting things right away. And we see that it's really driven uh, good characteristics in our industry. I mean, the focus on next day air and having things delivered uh, the next day versus a deferred method, that really is where our specialty is, is our focus. So we are really encouraged by what we see in those areas. And how much do you have to sort of revise the strategy or revise sort of the roadmap in the near term to speed it up? And at at what point do you have to really change things in, in the supply chain, as it were? You know, the key is to listen to our customers. And if you will listen, they'll tell you what they're needing and what they're looking for. And, uh, and right now, there are, are certain things, the reliability, the, the fact of uh, the brand that UPS, the trust that people have in our, uh, in our brand, the fact that, uh, that they can depend on us on a day-to-day basis. And those are the things that we're focused on. And as long as we keep aligned with our customers' needs, we're going to be in great shape. So FedEx saying seven days a week, every day, every month, every day of the year, doesn't matter, not just holiday season. Does that make you guys go back and have another strategy season, uh, strategy session back at UPS? You know, we constantly reviewed the needs of our customers. And, and what we were hearing just recently was not only the Saturday uh, ground that, uh, that our competitors also provide as we do, but the fact that we deliver to businesses on Saturday where they don't. And we pick up packages on Saturday that can actually be delivered Monday and, uh, and in over 170 countries in the world, by picking up on Saturday, we can deliver on Monday. That's been our key. We are starting to hear a little more about the need for Sunday delivery. But you're not ready to do it? We are looking at it right now. And, uh, and in our last contract that just recently got ratified, we have language that covers us for Saturday and Sunday. So we are pretty far down the path and, you know, we will talk about it. We have more to review. And strategically, how much do you worry about Amazon? Are they a frenemy? Are they a friend? Are they an enemy? Are they a competitor? All of the above depends on the business. You know, this world has gotten way more complicated than having someone labeled as a competitor or a customer. It is oftentimes, it's a combination of both. And you just have to accept that. The key is making sure that we have mutually beneficial relationships. And as long as we do, then that's the path that, uh, that we're following. So I would not say that we worry about uh, Amazon. We respect them, just like we respect uh, uh, others that may be our competitors in certain parts of our business. But if we stay focused on doing our job and implementing our transformation and carrying out our strategies, then we feel very comfortable in our position. Well, talk to us about that transformation plan because I've been at Worldport in Louisville and it's pretty fascinating just logistically what you guys are doing. And it's not just, and I say just in quotation marks, it's about getting packages from A to point B, but you're working with the healthcare sector and other sectors. Give us an idea of as you transform the company, how much becomes more of those transformations versus what you're doing today? I will. We are 112 years old, so we've probably been through five major transformations in the history of our company. This is one of those. And the message we're giving to our people is this is continuous transformation. There's not a beginning. There's not an end. The way the business world is changing, this is a way of life. 
And we really believe that our people have accepted that. We focused in three particular areas, mm -hmm. first of which is high-quality revenue growth. Second is uh, increasing our efficiency using a lot of technology. And third is broadening our management team and our culture. Cultures are like anything else. They have to change with the times. The sense of urgency is much more making decisions is much more important now. And that's where we're focusing our leadership team. And that, of course, was UPS chairman and CEO David Abney. There's more of our conversation. We talked with him for a long time. Just check out our Bloomberg Business Week Extra podcast. So lots of fun things to read about in Pursuits this week while you're enjoying this summer week. And even a few things to maybe put on your list of things to do next summer or this fall or next spring. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, especially because I read this first story. This so for you. Immediately emailed my best friend who's a runner. We've run a bunch of marathons together and basically sent him a link and said, we're doing, we're doing this. this. The run of your life. Yes. Hut, run, hut. Hut, run, hut. And of course, we're here with Chris Rouser, the editor of Pursuits. I never even introduced him because <laughs> we're so excited to see him. <laughs> Hi, guys. I'm Chris. Um, so we wrote, we did a whole section about getting out in the outdoors and doing like outdoor sports, uh, this section, because it's in the middle of summer. You know, we might want some inspiration to try something new. And last year, actually, the, the copy editor, one of the copy editors that works on our section, Brennan, was like, you know what I want to do? This crazy adventure in Colorado where you start from Aspen and you run, run for 100 miles between all these huts through the Rocky Mountains. And I was like, wait, you want to do that? Yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, they do it two times a year. It's called Hut Run Hut because you're going between these 10th Mountain Division huts. Um, and, you know, they, they truck in the food. So you're kind of just running free. Uh, and it's apparently this incredible experience. So he did it and he wrote about it for this year. So, you know, if you want to do it this year, you can sign up. But And he sounded like he loved it. It was unbelievable. Yeah, he said it was really amazing. Obviously, uh, it's an incredible slow – it doesn't feel slow, but it's a slow way to go through the Rockies and right. really experience the wilderness. You see animals. You see stuff that you would never see if you were it's on amazing. a car or even on a bike. Um, and, and you're not running all the time. Sometimes you're hiking. You're doing other things, right? You're kind of having fun. Yeah. So he said you know, when they were running, they're going 10 to 20 miles a day, and they're going up over mountains, and, and the huts are oftentimes in valleys, actually. So uh, you know, it's six days – Nearly 100 miles. It's a lot of work, but it's also at times, you know, slow and beautiful. Well, and the way that he describes even the huts themselves oh, and the sort of vibe around them. Yeah. And he would pull his like little foam mattress outside and sleep on the deck. And, Under you know, he describes the stars and, and things like that. It's very different from a lot of the uh, endurance races like the Western states and these, mm -hmm. you know, badlands and things like that, which people really suffer through. This actually sounds fun. Right. Yeah. So ultra marathons, as you know, are very popular uh, i mean popular among a certain group yeah, of people yeah. like jason uh not but there's popular there's something like 1400 <laughs> in the u.s every year which is a lot more than there were ten, even 10 years ago but this is a little bit of a different yeah. thing um and you know these huts were built by um alums from the 10 Mount, 10th mountain division they started building in, in the 80s and they're these little houses basically yeah. that are open plan and you can sleep up in these you know sort of bunk areas or you can sleep uh out on the porch which is but what they're, did. but they're nice like it's yeah. hut like it's not they all have spiders the in the corner and it's a little dusty. I mean, they sound pretty nice. Yeah, they are nice. And, you know, and, and most huts are, are pretty nice and well kept in the U.S. because these associations keep them up. But nice. the, these ones all have the same amenities, so like the same books in each one. You could pick up the same book and read it each night in a row, you know. Okay. Tell us, though, about – is it Ricky Gates, the guy who's kind of behind all of this? Yeah, so um, – Ricky uh, has has done it for several years. He grew up in Aspen, and he yeah. um, he just he does a winter one as well. This is actually modern modeled after a winter one that's done for charity, and because you can ski to between these two between all these huts. Um, and he's just like a really funny guy. Sounds and a riot. He um, they only cross one road in the whole trip until they got to the end. And so when they got to the road, he wouldn't let them run across it. They had to figure out a different way to do it. So they either had to, you know, pretend they were zombies or hop across it. Right. And, you know, he just loved to make fun out of it. Because even though it's hard to run that far for that long, he wanted it to be like, And joyful. very relevant. You also have a yeah. sidebar about yes. how to soothe those sort of legs. I actually got to participate in some of the testing yep. on this. Mm -hmm. I tried the Feel Good Lab Sport Recovery Lotion. It works. It's yeah. really... Really? It, 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 it really yeah. works. And... 
a lot of these that uh, Claire Ballantyne lays out in the section use a lot of natural ingredients, and so it's not the like the icy hot and the. Where you walk in the room the and everybody's like, "Oh, you pulled the muscle!" Like, yeah, 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 right. yeah. Thanks for bringing the gym into the office. <laughs> yeah, we tried a lot of, of, of uh, different sort of natural remedies from yeah. arnica to witch hazel to CBD, and they all work. Yeah, yeah, they were great. Uh, all right, golf. Also on the docket, Sea Island, it's a pretty fancy place and can spend a lot of money fixing your golf game, apparently. Yeah, you can. Uh, <laughs> sea Island in Georgia, um, they uh, the performance center there is is really has a fitness focus. They want to call they want it to be kind of the Mayo Clinic for golf. So you can go if you just want to improve your game through improving your body, or even if you have an injury um, and you need to do some PT, you can go there. The experts there will uh, teach sort of teach you how to make yourself better, and then they'll give you a, a take home program. So mm-hmm. they'll give you homework basically, which is what uh, our writer John Paul Newport did, um, and they they've spent over the past year, they've spent tens of millions of dollars sort of rehabbing this place and bringing the technology up to the state of the art. So it's really an awesome time to go now. And bring some incredible people, right, who really understand kind of mm-hmm. how to fix your, your swing. I think there's one guy who wrote a master's, right, on how golfers can add 10 yards of distance with a regular stretching program. Yes. Uh, yeah. It. And Randy Myers, yeah. who has been there for 15 years, um, has worked with over 70, uh, you know, PGA players. So it's, uh, you know, there's a guy who specializes in putting. There's a guy who specializes in long distance drives. You know, there's really someone for everything. And they work together to create a program for you. That's Chris Rouser, the editor of the Pursuit section. And Jason, before we go, you also took a deep dive with this week's critic. In Pursuits this week, a book review about Bud Selig's new book. And the headline really says it all. Bud Selig was baseball's greatest hero. Says Bud Selig. <laughs> Evan Novi Williams follows baseball closely. He read the book. He reviews it. So what'd you take away from this tome? Yeah. So Bud Selig has a very pro Bud Selig view of his 22 years as Major League Baseball commissioner. Uh, he certainly accomplished a lot when he was there. He changed the game forever. Absolutely. Um, but he does not seem to really connect the dots between the problems that baseball is having right now and decisions that he made under his leadership. I mean, those 22 years have to be some of the most impactful and change-riddled in the history of baseball in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, without question. I mean, he took over in the early 1990s, right, and immediately led baseball through the strike in 1994, right, the, the first cancellation of a World Series in in, in dozens and dozens of years. Uh, and that, you know, coming out of that, baseball had a lot of uh, trust to make up with the American public. Um, and it did so over the course of, you know, two decades afterwards. Uh, and he led baseball through that, right? So, so much of the way baseball is structured right now, the the way the divisions are laid out, the way the first wild card and then the second wild card, you know, interleague play. So the Mets and Yankees they play, you know, so many games every single year because Bud Selig put that together, right? With the World Baseball Classic. I mean, the list is really endless of the decisions that he made, some of them that he forced on owners, owners who didn't want to do it uh, to make the game a little bit healthier. Well, and he also oversaw the era of steroids, or at least maybe the <laughs> discovery uh, of steroids and, and drugs uh, being taken by players. And you write in your review that he sort of tries to have it both ways there. Yeah, it's interesting. So he, it's clear clear that Bud Selig hates Barry Bonds. He makes it clear from literally the first words of the book. Um, but yes, the stories are a perfect example, in my opinion, right? So Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire have this crazy home run hitting summer into fall in the late 1990s. And, you know, baseball goes crazy over it. There were yeah. live look-ins, you know, cutting away from SportsCenter. Um, and then, you know, Barry Bonds... In many co- ways, you could argue that was what sort of brought baseball back from those labor I, I would, troubles I you mentioned. I think you're right? exactly right on that, right? And so, so baseball, you know, whether they knew at that moment or not, you know, Mark McGuire was caught with Andrew in his locker in the middle of that season. Uh, baseball certainly benefited from and pushed both the McGuire Sosa years and the Barry Bonds home run chase a couple years later. Um, and Bud Selig in his book essentially takes the stance that as soon as he knew it was happening, he hated every minute of it, didn't want to mention it at all, and then, you know, was forced by the union to go through this kind of song and dance maneuver for years before he could get test again. Right. And part of that is true. You know, the union was, you know, very resistant to forcing their players to be drug tested. However, it's also unequivocally true that baseball both promoted and benefited 
benefited from this steroid home run era that now Bud Selig's trying to vilify. So you look across all the sports and the business of them. You have a great podcast with uh, Scott Soshnick uh, and Michael Barr every week that people should tune into. Just quick plug for you there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, one of the things that strikes me reading this review and watching baseball a little bit is you think about MLB versus like the NBA right now in terms of one is clearly ascendant, the NBA, and one feels stagnant baseball. Why? Yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and they have it's a perfect two examples because they have roughly the exact same amount of annual of revenue, right? They're both about nine billion dollars, Major League Baseball and the NBA. Uh, one issue that Major League Baseball has, and, and it's a huge one, the demographics just are not necessarily in their favor. You know, it's it's an aging demographic. Uh, the NBA is the opposite, really. It, it trends a little younger. It trends urban. It trends tech savvy. So so the NBA is able to tap into a lot of, you know, new tech and new social media type things that baseball isn't doing really because its fans aren't necessarily there, right? And, and another big change that you see NBA owners come from a very different class yeah. of businessmen than you see in other traditional sports, right? So the fact that you have Steve Ballmer, you know, and Mark Lazary and Wes Edens in, in the NBA owner meetings, right, I think pushes the league a little bit more progressive uh, and a little bit more, you know, tech forward than you see in, in, in major, maybe major, major League Baseball's world, you know? So no question, you know, those are two leagues that are roughly on the same place right now yeah. in terms of business. But if I was betting on one of them, you know, in terms of 10 years from now, where they're going to be, there's no question that I would expect basketball to be a much bigger enterprise uh, than baseball. And that's Eben Novi Williams. He's the co-host of Bloomberg Business of Sports, heard all weekend long right here on Bloomberg Radio, available as a podcast wherever you download. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home at iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also get this week's edition of the magazine that is on newsstands now. We'll be back right here next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.